Our guest today on Lily High on Life is Chaim Sukenik, who's visiting from Israel in Melbourne, Australia, and touring Australia with us. And he is the president of the Jerusalem Institute of Technology. Chaim, welcome to Melbourne and welcome to Lily High on Life. Thank you very much, Lily. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. The community has been wonderful and, and I appreciate your hospitality as well. Thank you. You have done some wonderful things in your life and you're an academic. That category of person is always so interesting to me because your mind definitely works in different ways. But you've gone from working in academia to actually academic administration and the Jerusalem Institute of Technology is very unique. So maybe you could start off by telling us a little bit about the college and also your uh, what makes it different. Yeah, well, it, it, it is interesting. Um, the, the, the classic pathway that, that I felt followed um, was to do about four years of a degree in chemistry at, at Yeshiva University uh, and then go out to Caltech, uh, do a postdoc at UCLA, uh, and then take a faculty position in the United States. And that was all, I would say, fairly standard. Uh, very, not in any way unusual for, for Americans. Did you just academia. love chemistry and knew that you wanted to go into that? Yeah, I, I think what, what happened, and I regard it as a, as a great fortune, that the, uh, the school that I went to, K through 12 in, in Miami, um, had a gentleman who was the principal who really tried very hard to help each student develop their own skills, their own passion. Um, and early on, uh, as a result of both response to classroom activity and uh, I guess achievement tests, uh, I remember Rabbi Gross coming to me and saying, Chaim, you know, you're, you're really good in science. Uh, and he was willing to give me some special consideration to allow me to do some stuff with the older kids, which always felt, you know, like you were, you were very privileged. Um, and that passion for science then started showing up. It sort of feeds on itself. Uh, you're told you're good at something, and, and therefore you get better at it. Um, and all the way through grade school, high school. And your parents um, encouraged it too. They did. They did. They, they, uh, neither of them was doing science professionally and neither of them was an academic. They were both teachers. Um, and I think what ended up happening was that as that started to feed, so I, when I was in high school, there was an opportunity to attend a program sponsored by the National Science Foundation at a university uh, up north. We lived in Miami and this meant going up upstate New York. Uh, and my parents uh, were very encouraging, and I got to spend a summer, again, kind of pretending to be a, a college student, and, and that was fun. But that all fed into a situation where by the time I came to my own college career, I wasn't even making decisions about whether or not I should pursue that kind of thing. The, the chemistry was sort of part and parcel of, of who I was, um, and that, that stayed that way. So the, the commitment, the interest in doing science, and in encouraging others to do science as well uh, through neighborhood youth activities. Uh, that was pretty strong. And in the United States, it's fairly typical that people would go straight from high school to college. Uh, so there was no pause, no gap year kind of thing along the way. And that worked out well. Um, 
Yeah, and you grew up in an Orthodox house, Jewish Orthodox household in Miami. Yes. And and ended up making Aliyah. Was that always a plan, or did that kind of happen through other means? Um, actually, it, it really wasn't the plan. There was no particular plan. Uh, my wife and I uh, got married young. We got married while we were still in college, so that when we went, uh, when I was in graduate school, was it a we together, Did you fall in love? A bit um, of both. Her her cousin was my roommate in high school. We, we uh, were in a, a dormitory situation in Miami, and when I came to that science program in, in the summer uh, during high school, uh, it was at Syracuse University. She was in Rochester and her cousin invited me to come and spend weekends in Rochester. Um, and he, I guess, yeah, that kind of qualifies as a shidduch. He introduced me to his cousin, um, but I don't think there was anything formalistic about it. Um, it was time to get married, or you really liked well, we, we, we were 16 years old. It was clearly oh not God. time to get married. <laughs> Uh, but we continued to correspond for the, the next year before we came to New York, and then we were both in college in New York together. So we started dating, and uh, it, we were going out for about three years, and at that point we said, yeah, it was time to get married. So, and that, thank God, worked well. You know, it's, uh, we've been married now for over 50 years, and not everybody is, is fortunate enough, even those who do get married young, I believe that is good fortune, but not everybody grows together. Um, okay, now you're speaking to somebody who is close to your age and has never been married. <laughs> so, uh, when I ask you the question, because I do think it's wonderful, and uh -huh. the majority of my friends have also been married about as long as you, uh -huh. um, when I ask you the question, what do you think it was that has kept you on the same page and together for all these years? It comes from a number of directions. No, it's, it, it's a good question. My, my wife and I, um, because of COVID, our celebration of our 50th wedding anniversary ended up extending uh, over about a year and a half because we wanted to get all our kids together. And one set of kids from Chicago uh, in the height of COVID, kids weren't vaccinated kids. yet. We have four children, two living in Israel, one in Chicago, one in Los Angeles. And uh, we couldn't get everybody together for the 50th anniversary celebration. Uh, so one family, our daughter from LA and, and her family came in uh, the first summer, sort of on, on the real time of the event. Uh, and then we were able to bring the second family in a year later after everybody's vaccinated. So it, it was nice. It gave us an opportunity to get people together. But, but coming back to your question, the, the, the issue of what are the ingredients that enable a marriage to work? And, and thank God, I, I believe our marriage has worked very well. Um, it, it's, it's a little hard to pin down. I think we both um, not only have a lot of respect for each other, and that, that's a funny word to use in, in an emotional relationship, but, but I think that's a large piece of it, the, 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 notion, the notion that your spouse is someone that, that you respect, that you look up to, um, and a, a kind of shared set of goals, shared set of aspirations. I think that we, we both wanted to have a family that would reflect that and, and have worked hard to, uh, to do our best to make that happen. 
we share pride in a lot of those things. We're, we're both tremendously proud of our kids. Um, they're each different. That they've each sort of chosen their own paths in life, um, but they're have they all remained Shomer Shabbos? They have. They have stayed. But but again, as as you know, uh, the range of religious philosophy of religious affiliation. So they are. I think they all would define themselves as as uh, religiously observant, um, and they are in turn raising their own children in in that direction. Um, but there's no question that, that the flavor of that religious observance, uh, how they interpret things, what kinds of traditions they are attracted to, uh, I think that does change. And then that has uh, been quite, and, and we're, again, I, I think that's part of our pride in our children, that yes, they have stayed within the fold, but they have each felt comfortable going off into directions where they could express themselves, uh, their spouses are all different from each other. Uh, their career choices are, are all different. Um, and that the pride in their independence and in their success is something that my wife and I share and, and mm. we talk about a lot. So that, that's a big piece of it, you know, having that in common and having uh, that, that sense of satisfaction allows us to look back at the 50 plus years and to say, well, gee, that was, that was really good. You know, we've, we've been blessed. And you really have. One of the things about that I try to instill in Lily High on Life is the concept of you can look at the world as half full or half empty. And when you find the positive things, when you find the things in a situation, any situation that make you feel better, change your attitude, change your life, then those things come make a happy life rather than the, the flip of that which is looking for faults because you're unsatisfied. So when I'm asking you those, these questions, it really is within the context that you sit on a number of um, ethical boards and, and things in different um, streams of what may be chemistry of, or just generally science, but you weigh up um, all different situations in life and have to come to decisions where there are various um, different options for coming to those decisions. So yeah. um, I, I, I'm more than happy with your answer about your, the longevity of your marriage. I, I think there's one, there's one more component there that, that if I were sharing with others, I, I would say that the flexibility and the willingness to change direction I think to me is a hallmark of, of anything being successful. If, if, you're, if you're completely stuck on one model, um, we're all going to make mistakes. We need to be flexible and we need to fix those mistakes and we need to be aware that they're out there and that's simply part of life. In our own lives, the, the shift from being in the United States to being in Israel, as I said, was an unanticipated shift. Um, and yet when the opportunity was presented, okay, you sit down and you ask yourself, is this an opportunity that I'd like to take advantage of? The, the same thing happened with my moving over to the, the Jerusalem College of Technology. Um, I was perfectly content as a chemistry professor. I had moved from a position at, at Case Western Reserve in the United States to Bar-Ilan University in Israel. And thank God, was, was very happy doing the research that I was doing, the teaching that I was doing. And then about 10 years ago, somebody who was on the search committee at the Jerusalem College of Technology came to me and said, Chaim, would you be willing to consider 
taking on this new kind of responsibility, and I had never thought about it. Um, but after talking to the people, first of all, being open to considering new opportunities, I think is important. But after talking to the people there and, and realizing that there here was an opportunity to do something very different, very special, uh, which could potentially have tremendous both personal benefit in terms of my satisfaction in the job and, and what I felt I could accomplish, but also in terms of what one could do for the Jewish people, for the state of Israel, uh, it opened new doors. Really and, important. And was... Were you very familiar or just somewhat familiar with the college before you started considering the option? Yeah, just, just somewhat familiar. I knew that it was a place that had a, a long tradition, over 50 years old, um, of producing highly academically motivated and successful students, primarily in engineering. Uh, I was not aware of the fact that it had, at that time, recently embarked on a path that also included uh, healthcare professions. They just opened a nursing school before I arrived. Um, in fact, the gentleman who uh, was instrumental in opening that nursing school was Menachem Steiner, who's a former oh. Melbourne resident. Um, no, and, no relation. Well, oh, yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't notice. Um, but, but Menachem and the, the, the leadership of the institution was willing to take an institution that was an engineering school and now say, okay, well, the state of Israel now needs nurses. We have an opportunity. And as long as we do the training at, at the same high level that we've always insisted on in our engineering programs, let's go for it. So I, I give them a tremendous amount of credit, but what I saw, the package that was presented to me was this school that on one hand was committed to excellence, was committed to uh, high-level Torah learning, which to me was very important, um, and was looking for new opportunities, and those opportunities had already started to play out in the way of uh, enhancing women's education. Uh, there is, it, it's a religious school, in fact, with separate campuses, with separate men's and women's programs. Am I correct when I say it's the only religious institute of higher learning that is also um, religious or religiously based? I, I would say there are a couple of institutions, there, there are... There are four institutions that, that can legitimately lay claim to some blend of religious, Jewish religious perspective and academics. Uh, Yeshiva University is probably the, the venerable you know, starter of it all. Uh, Bar Ilan University in Israel and, and, and the Turo University system now in, in primarily in the United States but internationally. All three of those institutions have their own take on what it means to blend a Jewish religious perspective with academia. But and what by, does that actually mean at your Right, so, so for us it, it means that um, we do expect our students to be involved, all of our students, to be involved in some kind of Torah study. Uh, we expect a, a not just a, an abstract respect but an engagement in, in religious Jewish lifestyle. Um, it means that our population is more religiously oriented and more religiously homogeneous. There, there's a lot of heterogeneity in it, but it's more homogeneous, say, than what I saw at Bar-Ilan. At Bar-Ilan, they're, they're much broader in their intake. I would say the percentage of religious students at Bar-Ilan is probably less than a quarter of the student body. But on the other hand, that's very much a part of their tradition of, of, you know, of who they, how they see themselves. So I think 
Each of these four institutions has taken it in a slightly different direction. We've probably stayed closest to a model where the entire institution is committed to both the religious and the academic side. So would part of that be some of the mandatory classes are in Torah learning and must be passed? Yes, absolutely. Our students have an, an obligation to do Torah study as part of their time in, in school. Um, and that self-selects the kind of student that we get. So we have almost 5,000 students now, um, and virtually all of them are, are party and, and share that commitment. Uh, that's both for undergraduate and for graduate programs. So what did the job description look like when you came into it? Well, it, it was interesting because on one hand, the, the predominant part was, you know, don't ruin what you already have. It was an outstandingly good institution. <laughs> I and, like that. <laughs> but, you know, that, that's what they tell the, the new physicians on July 1st when they come onto the wards in the United States. The first thing is don't, don't do mess no harm. up. Yeah, do no harm, exactly. <laughs> Um, but there were opportunities, and in Israel in particular, the job description said, okay, now you have an opportunity to both develop high-level women's education uh, in the religious world, both for the national religious community and for the Haredi women, and that was one challenge. The other challenge, though, which many people are aware of today, is that a point of contention uh, between the ultra-Orthodox population in Israel and the, the broader Israeli society is what is the place of higher education. And the Council of Higher Education had already set as a goal to try to create a circumstance which would enable the Haredi community to gain higher education and thereby enable themselves to go into high-level employment. Um, it works a little better or a little less well, depending not only on the specifics of the education, but on the environment around it. And here we had an opportunity to take uh, our men's and women's campuses, which is unusual, there aren't many instances of gender-separated campuses, and to use that environment as a way of creating, if you will, a Haredi-friendly uh, circumstance so that you don't necessarily have to see eye to eye on all the details of the religious philosophy, but if someone is coming from an extended yeshiva career, to walk onto a regular secular campus is, is difficult. It, it's, it's something that's intimidating, it's something that's unfamiliar, whereas coming onto our campus where the environment encourages that and is consistent with that has made it easier, and therefore, uh, I'll say quite frankly, we, we have been successful uh, without changing the, the Zionist ethos of the institution, but we've been successful in bringing in a large number of Haredi students who are now doing high-level college degrees and going out and getting good jobs. I must say, the way you talk about it now sounds wonderful, but is surprising to me, because the whole area of Haredi studying anything is still somewhat controversial. In Israel, or it, it have is, I missed something? It, you know, it's like anything else, Lily. You, you have to be sensitive to the context. I think you can bring about a revolution, but not necessarily by being revolutionary. Uh, you don't have to try to shake things up. You have to try to offer options that are in people's best interests. So are you saying currently um, the number, the actual number of Haredi, or the percentage of Haredi is enough? 
that um, to more than fill your uh, your college and look for more. No, our our college is as I say about five thousand students, of which. Uh, about 40% of them come from the Haredi world and the remaining 60% mostly from the national religious world. Do you market into the Haredi community or is it just you wait till they come no, to you? No, you have to market it, but you have to market it a little differently. Haredi media uh, press does not encourage and in many cases does not allow uh, advertising of academic programs. So we have people who are, you know, uh, they're out in the field trying to get the word out. Our best marketing, though, comes from our students, and that's why it's, it's sort of a growth curve. As well. I'm actually, I should probably interject at this stage, if not earlier, that the, the, for, because we have non-Jewish listeners, we go out into the international secular world, that um, the, Jewish, uh, the Jewish religion has different types of groups or sects sects. Um, Chabad is one of the big ones that goes in and mingles a lot in many communities internationally. Haredim do not mingle as much and believe that their strength is in their study of Torah rather than on their participating within the regular community. Is that, that, that that's fair probably enough distinction? true. I think that the, the, the definition, even though sometimes the, the Hebrew word Haredi is often translated as ultra-Orthodox, I don't think the ultra-label is appropriate. There's nothing uh, ultra about it. And there are other people who are just as careful in their uh, Torah learning and mitzvah uh, observance of the commandments as the people who self-identify as part of the Haredi community, but there is a kind of insular quality to it, as, as you pointed out, and, and that's right. It, right. We all draw lines for ourselves. We all decide how much we want to expose ourselves and our families to other influences, and the Haredi community tends to be more conservative, more and also, inward. Yes, and also the Israeli government is extremely interesting, for want of a better word, in its structure, and so the Haredi community was actually able to um, mandate within the government the fact that their community did not have to participate in the army, um, in learning. They did get a lot of um, additional benefits because they were studying and through study and uh, relationship with God they were participating in a very different that, way. That was and part, that's caused a bit of a, an issue. It, it is an issue now. It, it was a negotiated arrangement in the early, early days of the state, as, as the state was really in its nascency, um, that the leadership of the state said, we really want everybody to participate in everything. But it was clear that there was at least some agenda of trying to blend in the more closed European shtetl Jew, if you will, uh, and turn him into a, a more active part of Israeli society, which even at the risk of, or perhaps even uh, subliminally, with the intention to kind of bring everybody together and, and, and to create a, a pathway where those people could become more similar to their, their secular Israeli neighbors. And even basically earn a living is really what the right. bottom so, line so is. Right, so there was that concession. In other words, the concession was that the, the Haredi leadership said, okay, we understand that you would like us to serve in the army. Uh, we feel that army service would be a threat, a cultural threat 
to our young men. <clears throat> and therefore, uh, we will say, okay, we're, we're not going to serve in the army, but we're also not going to get training. We're, we're going to know that if we do want to go out into the world, get the training, get the jobs, then army service is part of the price we have to pay. And then some stupid politician, or because I'm not exactly sure who it was, okay. decided to link the availability of um, money for studying with or against um, the opportunities to work. So you lost benefits if you um, went out to work. Well, that, that was part of the deal, right? Yeah. If you're not going to serve in the army, then we're not going to let you go out to, to work. We're not going to let you go to college. Which in Th retrospect was, was not a great one because it, it meant that it put a lot of people who would have loved to have go out, go out to work in a position where they couldn't because within the community they needed to save face. Uh, okay, I, I think that the people who, who buy into that are, are largely doing it because they want to be there and because that's really their, their comfort zone. Um, what the, the considerations bottom, were early on in making that trade-off? And it doesn't matter. The, the real bottom line is that it provides an opportunity for you today to find ways to um, integrate all right. of that. And, and the, the way is, is really pretty simple. It breaks down to the fact that A, you have to offer people something where they feel comfortable, yep. and B, they have to know that at the back end of the system, after they've committed all of the energy and effort that it takes to go through um, a preliminary phase and then to go through a full college degree, uh, at the back end they're going to get good jobs. So our credibility and the fact that our graduates have always gotten very good jobs in Israeli high tech and others made us an attractive option both for the comfort level and for the fact that they were pretty well assured uh, that they were going to get a good, good job when they came out. And, and that's worked out. And also your, un your uniqueness in the way that you do that is something really special where you're also now, one of your, the reasons that you're traveling is because you're opening up a new center for women to encourage women to become more involved in uh, technology and education right, that, that's, generally. That's really important. Tell us, yes, please tell us a bit more well, about that. Well, when the school started, uh, Zev Lev, the founder, uh, was an Israel Prize winning physicist, but also a, a religious scholar. And his initial vision was to take young men from a yeshiva background and train them to be engineers and, and basically the leadership of the state of Israel in academia and industry. Uh, and he did that, and he did that very well for over 20 years. And at some point people said, well, can we also reach out to, to provide a similar set of opportunities for the women from the religious community? Again, without any eye towards this insular Haredi community, but just religious women, uh, again, whether gender-separated education is better for women or not better for women, uh, I think that, that debate goes on in, in, in the world around us. But in any event, what happened was that because the women's division came into existence a bit later, uh, it has been, if you will, languishing for the last 25 plus years in rented quarters uh, just on the other side of Jerusalem. And the government, 10 years ago or so, gave us a piece of land um, and they've been, we've gone Which through the process. Which is a big deal. Jerusalem Very. ain't Jerusalem, that big. <laughs> that's right. And, and, and the land is certainly a valuable, it, it was given as a, a symbolic purchase, you know, for, for a few thousand shekel. 
um, and we've just finished all of the permits and planning so that the actual digging of this new state-of-the-art campus for the women, which will be alongside the men's campus, but will still maintain the gender-separated nature and, and environment, uh, that's just getting underway. So next month, we start digging. Uh, the project is, quite frankly, a little intimidating. It's, it's about a $120 million project, but we're fortunate we have good friends that have already gotten us about two-thirds of the way there. So Excellent. we will continue, but you're right, that's part of what's put me out on the road and looking to spread the word to tell people about who we are and what we are, uh, but also to find people with whom the idea of both empowering women, um, Israel's needs both in the high-tech arena and in the healthcare arena, those are things that we can tick those boxes very legitimately and, and I just have to tell people about it and many people have been extremely supportive, so it's, it's mm, a good feeling. I was going to say, what has the feedback been? And um, is it? Did you? Are you starting with Australia, or you've been to the states already? Where are well, we? Well, we've been, you know, informally, we we've been uh, running this campaign already for a few years. Uh, when it got enough momentum that we could kind of see a path to the finish line, that we committed to an architect and to all of the the pieces that one has to put in place. Uh, that goes back about two years when we were confident enough that we could make it happen. And then, of course, travel in, in light of COVID was, was not so simple. So now I'm back in a mode of traveling. We also have a wonderful staff that, that does as specialists uh, institutional development. Uh, and they are active in Israel and North America. And uh, Australia is far enough away that, that most of the communication with Austra potential Australian donors a lot of it happens when they come to Israel themselves. Which we do a lot. Yes, that's, uh, First generation after the Holocaust is still very connected to Israel. There's no, there's no question that, that people, people still have to appreciate how special it is that we have Israel, that we have a state that's thriving. Um, and as you say, it's not just, but it certainly includes people that after the Holocaust recognize the price that we paid and, and recognize how wonderful it is that, that we can get together. I remember my mom describing to me sitting and listening to the radio with the, the vote for partition in the UN. I mean, there was an excitement even when she told us about it decades later. So yeah, those of us who were born into that and those of us that are living in the state of Israel have to appreciate that that is special and the fact that people from Australia are willing to, to go that entire distance uh, to come and visit uh, and to, to put down roots. I know many of the children from this community have relocated to Israel. Yes. That's part of the incentive for the parents then coming to visit. But that's great. It's, uh, it's a national experience, and that's what Israel is supposed to be. Yes. It's supposed to be the focus of the Jewish people's national existence and to provide opportunities both for the Jews to strengthen themselves, but also to provide a model, or la goyim, to be a light onto the nation. Absolutely. And whether it's economically or academically or morally, those are things that we're expected to do. And it's such a unique place from so many different perspectives, including religion, but also in the way the um, economy is structured with high tech um, and just what people are able to do. Uh, just briefly, the women are participating in the college now, but this new building will allow more women or would just organize it better? No, it, it, it will hopefully allow us. We, we now have about 2,000 women. The college is about half men, half women. 
but the capacity of the new campus will take it up to uh, more than another 50% increase in that. Uh, and, and when you build facilities that are yours and that are yes. long-term, that's different than taking rented space and just kind of adapting it to your short-term needs. Uh, I mean, things like a child care center, the, the women who come to us, many of them are married, many are with children. The ability to create an environment where they can bring their babies, the nursing mothers can come and in the same facility have access to the babies over the course of the day so that they can continue with their studies but be comfortable that their children mm -hmm. are well cared for. That's something that you need a customized facility. You need a big enough space. You need to be able to plan it and to execute it uh, in, in a way that will that'll work. And this is what you've now that's done. It. Well, that's what we're hopefully going to be doing, but you'll have to come and, and see it. Uh, I would guess four years. It's going to take us about four years to, to build the entire project. Look forward to it. Yeah. Um, your, has your, your actual job and job description changed much or was um, raising money always part of it? Um, <laughs> that's always a little bit of an awkward question when, when people are interviewed for a job like the president of a college where the, the agenda of the search committee is to put the emphasis on uh, being a public spokesman for the school and uh, being able to chart the academic course of the school and to select new areas of emphasis uh, and that's certainly still a big piece of it. Uh, I was probably a little bit taken aback by the percentage of my time that is committed to fundraising. But, but if you believe in what you're doing, having to go to people and say, listen, I think this is a really worthwhile project and I'd like you to get involved, I, I think that it hasn't been all that difficult. Um, I won't say that I do it as yeah, well. You, you need to believe in what you're doing. Absolutely. You obviously do. But you, and, not but, and, but you seem to be very much involved in some absolutely fascinating projects to do with the technology itself. Everything from space travel to nanotechnology stuff to food, um, you know, non-food food. You were talking about an right. ethics committee that you sit on in terms of meatless meat. Well, it, again, when you're in a technology environment, you're open to change. You're, you're, you try to encourage your students to think creatively. We have a big push in entrepreneurship. Uh, and even for the students who themselves don't feel that they have what it takes to, to go and start a company, we encourage them. Think creatively, Think you know, take that initiative. And because it's done in a religious context, many of the innovations are then considered through the lens of the religious experience. Uh, so you mentioned uh, cell-cultured meat is, is an example. We have a, a group of young scholars who have been looking at the uh, ethical and, and religious implications of being able to grow your steak in a, in a laboratory as opposed to in a cow. Uh, what does that mean? You know, and I think it raises, what, what I find fascinating about it is that it takes us into areas that people never anticipated. The religious literature is replete with innovation and with the ability to deal with new situations, but sometimes finding appropriate analogy is not so simple. And in the case of, of taking you know, stem cells, early stage cells that can be directed to making all kinds of new things, it's hard to find a perfect analogy to that in the classical religious literature. So you end up interacting both with the high-end technology people, the startups, but you also end up interacting with the religious decisors, with the people who really have the weight of religious authority 
uh, on their shoulders and they're the ones that are going to be making the decisions as to how those innovations will be received by the religious community. And, and those innovations range from the meat to artificial intelligence driven, you know, smart homes, um, all of those things introduced new... to do for Shabbat. Yeah, for, for Shabbat and, and, and even decision making. To what extent is a decision made by an artificial intelligence computer, does it have the same status as a person-made decision? Uh, those are philosophically important questions and they have religious ramifications as well. So those kinds of things I find intriguing and the privilege of working with people who are at the cutting edge, both on the technology side and on the religious study side, I just love it. I mean, it, it's, it sounds great. amazing. I had, when I lived in LA, I had a little bit to do with startups and innovation and the people themselves were amazing to work with because you have to have passion and creativity and um, rocks in your head to start <laughs> many of these projects. Yeah. But so what are, can you name one or two of the really ones that excite you at the college at the moment? You're saying of the startups that are coming out of now, the, or the projects? No, just projects that are, right. that are already ongoing well, I think at the this, university. This Torah Technology Research Center is, is a biggie. Um, the, the entrepreneurship activity in general, which has already spawned since JCT came along, we've already got over a hundred companies that have been spun out of the school, including one that, that has a strong Australian connection. Uh, some of our graduates were involved in starting a company uh, called NDS, which was bought out by Rupert Murdoch and, and has since gone through a number of other phases. Uh, but that gives us a little bit of Australian legitimacy. Tell us a little bit about well, it. Well, it, it's again, it was communications technology, security of communications technology. Uh, and it was an exciting thing because not only were a number of our graduates involved in starting it, but because they were in Jerusalem, uh, they kind of had an inside pipeline to the best graduates coming out of the college. So it, it really became a very important project for the college. Um, and we've watched the Jerusalem uh, startup ecosystem, if you will, uh, near Barkat, the former mayor was very supportive of that kind of activity, himself being a startup person. Uh, and Moshe Leon, the current mayor, is also extremely supportive. And, and what's ended up happening is that that spirit now is infusing a lot of the business activity in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was never assumed to be uh, the high-tech hub of Israel. It was more Tel Aviv, Netanya, Herzliya. And now Jerusalem occupies a prominent place. Um, and what we see is that synergy between what we do, what the Hebrew University is doing, um, it, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And, and you see how it's transforming the face of Jerusalem. And to be honest with you, one of the things that excites me most about this new campus is that if you can now take and build something that is attention grabbing, but will call focus onto the crucial role that religious women are playing, in that high-tech ecosystem, I think that's an opportunity. It's an opportunity Absolutely. to recognize those contributions. So totally. we, we want to do it. And a hundred different projects. I mean, the diversity among that also must be absolutely huge. Well, a, a lot of it started in the world of lasers, okay? When, when, when JCT first started back in the 60s, the world, on, I guess the general title would be electro-optics. Uh, Electro-optics was the brand. There were only two or three places in the world that were doing electro-optics. That was creating the lasers, learning how to control them, learning how to use them. Um, and because our institution was producing 
good graduates with that expertise, they ended up taking on leadership roles in the IDF and in business, wow. but with a bias towards the world of electro-optics. Love so it. senior people in, in, uh, in the IDF, uh, companies in Jerusalem today, uh, Ophir Optronics was one of the early, really a pioneering company, started by one of our faculty members with some of our students. There's a company today, Sivan, that is uh, being built by one of our graduates. And what does it do? Uh, it, it makes high-powered, high-speed lasers. The, it, it, they have a novel approach to create, normally high-energy lasers require enormous power supplies. They've come up with a way for getting the same power, but without these huge you know, wow. house-sized power supplies. And that makes them portable, it makes them faster, and now both for industrial manufacturing and for space applications, for weapons applications, it, they're able to do some and very special things. And alternatives to regular batteries and things, it sounds like. Um, no, act actually there, the, the power comes from the ability, from how you couple the, the laser output. So the batteries are kind of normal there. Okay. Uh, but Israel has its place in that world as well. Just phenomenal. JCT, Jerusalem College of Technology. Correct. And hopefully we'll be hearing a whole lot more. Before we finish, I wanted to just take you back to your days when you made Aliyah and just ask you what it was like transitioning on a practical basis, even with a totally supportive partner. Um, what was that sort of transition and differences that you found most jarring or interesting? Well, m moving within academia, your, your responsibilities are, are almost cut and paste. In other words, you're expected to give lectures, to write papers, to you know, go to conferences, and, and that was what I was doing when we lived in Cleveland, and it's what I did when I moved to, to Bar-Ilan University. Uh, the fact that the lecturing to the undergraduate students had to be done in Hebrew was certainly a challenge. Uh, I had learned Hebrew at, you know, and had been engaged in it mostly in a religious context my whole life, but to have to now teach chemistry in Hebrew was, was an unusual challenge. Uh, but I think the bigger challenge was clearly for my family. Uh, yes. The professional side, you figure it out. Uh, the fact that our children had to make that transition, and some of them were at, at some sensitive stages socially, and you know, we, we came with a seventh grader and a tenth grader and a recent high school graduate and a almost college graduate who, who stayed on a year before she finished college. Uh, so they were all at different points in their own lives. And the adjustment, interestingly enough, we were warned that the most difficult would be for the seventh grader and the tenth grader. And, and they certainly had their challenges and they get a lot of credit for having stepped up to the plate. Well, do you remember what some of those challenges were? Well, it was were? social, it was academic, it was figuring out how to function in a new system. Um, also remember, growing up in the United States, the prospect of military service <clears throat> was not necessarily part mm. of the mainstream. And when I was growing up, there was a draft in the United States. By the time my kids were growing up, there, there was no such thing, post-Vietnam. And um, the fact that my, my two younger boys had to confront the reality that they were expected to go into the army, uh, admittedly in ways that were able to combine that army service with yeshiva learning. 
Um, the fact that you and your did. wife had to accept that also, um, as yeah. much as the kids, right. I would imagine. And, uh, there, there's a certain apprehension and a certain tension that comes with it because you don't know what that reality is. Our, our adult friends who had children going into the same thing, in most cases they themselves had first-hand familiarity. Uh, the men by themselves having served and the women by having siblings and parents and such that had served. Uh, we had none of that. So learning the culture of the Israeli army was a challenge for us. Uh, the fact that our boys really did a, a great job and, and viewed it as, okay, this is what's expected of us and, and we're going to do it. The, the level of enthusiasm they each had for the military service varied, um, but I think they, they both did a good job of it and they both came out of it uh, both personally and maturity-wise and religiously stronger than when they went in. It was, it was a real growth experience for them. So, but that, that was a big cultural adjustment for us. And do you feel that it was made a little bit easier by the fact you were going from one religious community into another religious community? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Outside of it being just Israel. Yeah, and, and we, were, we were fortunate enough that after a couple of years in, in Jerusalem, kind of feeling our way around, we settled into a small community near uh, Shalavim was a, a kibbutz area near the city of Modi'in. And that community, that yeshuv it's called, uh, was extraordinarily supportive. I mean, it was a, a group of a few hundred families um, that, that really helped each other a lot. And, and that help and that, that sense of community was enormously uh, Do you remember supportive. some of the little things that, um, that, that you really thought, oh wow, I'm glad there's somebody to help me through oh, with that. Th there were many, many little things, but I'll tell you one story that, that was not so little, but that I think highlights the, the, the support network. Um, among our closest friends in Nofi alone, in, in this community that we were a part of, um, there was a family that had come in, they were renting one of the houses and they had no intentions of staying there long term. And then sadly enough, there was a tragedy where two of the young men from the community were driving to work and, and they were killed in, in, a, in a traffic accident. Um, leaving behind, in each case, a widow with, uh, in one case two, in one case three children. And watching how the community rallied around them was what convinced friends of ours that this is the place we want to stay. Right. Um, it was it was an eye opener in terms of how the outpouring of love, the outpouring of, of emotional support, was absolutely magnificent. So Fabulous. It's, it's partly the religious aspect of it, but it's partly the social structure that comes with a yeshuv, with a a group of, as I say, a few hundred families. Like with some, you know, some amount of diversity, but but the fact that they share a a desire to help each other and to create that community really goes a long way. Right. That, that so, a difference. as we're running out of time, but just quickly, three things you love about Israel. Oh, I like the fact that, that I can fluidly go back and forth between Hebrew and English and not be self-conscious about it. In the States, that wasn't a, a luxury that I had. Um, I like the openness of the society. I like the fact that, that people communicate easily. And I'm absolutely thrilled with, with my own work environment. I think I, I've really, I feel like I won the lottery, that, that I've stepped into something that if you would have asked me five years before we moved to Israel, I would have never imagined that we would have gotten there. 
So thank God we, we've been fortunate and uh, the fact that our family has made the transition and that we're still together and, and doing good things for each other is, is a privilege. Excellent. So much more we didn't even get a chance to touch on because coming from the States and coming from Miami, there's also a lot of other things, but maybe another day. Wishing you the greatest success with your fundraising because it really is an amazing project that's so very, very important. Thank you very much for sharing your time with us today. Okay, pleasure. Thank you, Louise.